Buongiorno everybody and welcome. This is Identity Unlocked and I'm your host, Vittorio Bertocci. Identity Unlocked is the podcast that discusses identity specifications and trends from a developer perspective. Identity Unlocked is powered by Auth0. The season is sponsored by the OpenID Foundation. In this episode, we focus on the self-issued OpenID Provider Specification, or SIOP, in the Connect Working Group in the OpenID Foundation. Today, we are chatting with Christina Yasuda, Identity Standards Architect at Microsoft, and one of the authors of the specification and longtime advocate of decentralized identity. Welcome, Christina. Konnichiwa, Vittorio. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me today. And as it's tradition, let's start with how you ended up working in identity. Yes. So for me, working in identity was really a deliberate choice. As a passion project, I've been working with an NGO, internetbar.org, on the community empowerment project. And we've been producing music with marginalized people around the world and including refugees. And that's where we realized that sometimes we can't even pay those people because they don't have the identity. And to bring them to the digital world, they don't have a digital identity. And one thing is hearing that, you know, there's one billion people who don't have identity, but another thing is really experiencing it firsthand. So when when we when we started looking into the options, how you know, we can issue identity without over-relying on the governments and existing authorities, we were introduced to the concept of decentralized identity. And then we started digging more and more and, you know, meeting amazing mentors like, you know, Nat and now Heroes. They introduced me to the amazing world of already existing, you know, widely adopted standards such as OpenID Connect. And I just fell in love. I thought I wanted to work in the space. And as we got deeper, I realized that there was a need to take the best of the both worlds. You know, some things really work, something doesn't. If we can bring the best of decentralized into the already existing architecture, maybe we can make it better. I used to spend all my free time researching on identities, and I'm really happy to be able to do it professionally. And so you are now work in Microsoft, right? Yes, in Pam's team. We had your boss uh, in last season, Pamela, uh, talking about the uh, standards in general. I made sure I I listened to that one. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, because it's the boss. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Christina. It's so interesting. It's uh, unusual because uh, almost everyone that I interview for the show, they always start with like, oh, yeah, who would have thought I would have ended up in identity? And they always uh, suggest a really improbable trajectory that uh, led there. And I normally tell them, yeah, you're not special. Everyone did something odd like you. And now I can no longer tell them because I finally found someone who purposefully came to identity. So great. Thank you. So let's get to the main topic today. The first question is probably the hardest. What is SIOP in practice? Right. So it's the ability of the end users to act as an open ID provider themselves right? So giving the ability to the end users to authenticate themselves and present the claims about themselves directly to the relying party without um, redirecting to an external identity provider. Oh, wow. That's interesting. That's the classic scenario in which I tell people, I have to use my passport 
I cannot just write my identity on my post-it and give people the post-it because uh, people don't trust me directly. But you are telling me that instead in this particular case, the post-it is what we want to do. So that's super interesting. So can you go into more details about like, why would we want to do that? Like what would be a concrete scenario where having the user being able to be their own OpenID provider is actually useful as opposed to using an external provider? Yeah, so we have identity providers for a reason, right? And they work quite well, but no one is secured from the provider desk, either it's planned or sudden. And it's not just, you know, refugees who have the threat of not being able to suddenly authenticate themselves. So one example could be in Japan, exactly 10 years ago, we had a big earthquake and tsunami washed away entire cities including the government functions and the businesses, right? Which included some businesses doing IDPs. And so, so that while the restoration was happening, you know, made users unable to authenticate themselves and use certain services. So that could be, you know, one of the examples. And also because if the user is, you know, giving you the post-it, you don't need to ask an issuer to write that post-it every single time, right? Ideally, you want that post-it given to you once from the issuer, well, trusted issuer, and you can just keep giving it so the issuer doesn't know where you're using that post-it and which post-it you're using if, you know, you've received three or four from the same issuer. And that kind of, you know, from, I hear from some implementers that, so some IDPs, or companies want to have less access to personally identifiable information in certain cases. So they actually want users to be able to hand exact information instead of them doing it. Wow, so much to comment, so much interesting material there. So first, I think that the thing you say about the tsunami is incredibly insightful. That is the scenario that people really don't think about. You would think about the cloud, but the cloud is really made of buildings. And unfortunately, occasional buildings do get washed up by a tsunami. So that is an incredibly interesting thing to mention. And so you mentioned that there, people were unable to authenticate because literally the identity provider no longer existed. And instead, with the work that you're doing with SIOP, you would enable people to have some continuity instead of relying on the continuous existence of the provider. Did I understand correctly? Yes, and I think that inability of IDP could be, you know, physical, but also intentional. Like, for example, if I'm in opposition speaking up for my people in a country that is not so democratic, the company can order, you know, certain big companies to stop authenticating me or stop giving my identity. And those are also cases where probably, maybe those are, you know, the edge cases, but they open up those possibilities that, you know, we usually do not think about. Makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, we should probably think about those uh, possible worst case scenarios more often. So that's great. Now, thank you. Now I understand the high level scenario. Now, taking OpenID, which is designed to broker those interactions between a remote identity provider and uh, a user and uh, a relying party, and to make it work the way in which you foreshadowed, seems quite the jump. So are there mechanisms in the protocol that you can leverage for uh, building on and creating this scenario? Yeah, so in the existing mechanism, relying parties usually have an established trust relationship with identity providers, right? But 
if now we're asking if we want to enable users to be the open ID providers, if we use the existing system, we would have relying parties established trust relationship beforehand with every single user, right? And obviously there's much more users than their identity providers. So that's not very scalable. So we needed the mechanism so you, for the users to prove validity of their identifiers and the claims directly to the relying party, ideally with a minimum pre-established trust. And for the identifiers, you know, where the user is proving that they are in control of that identifier, a cryptographic verification was one of the methods that was looked at. So currently, Chapter 7 of OpenID Connect is where the self-issued open identity provider is initially has been outlined. Tell me more about the Chapter 7 of the OpenID Connect core specification before you actually came in and uh, added the new capabilities. Like the original Chapter 7, what do they say there? Yeah, so original Chapter 7 introduces this concept of self-issued OPs that we have been talking, and it defines new mechanisms in existence in the rest of OpenID Connect. For example, the one I was about to mention, using the thumbprint of the public key of the user to prove that the user is actually controlling that public key that is used to sign the response. So traditionally, the signature that you are talking about is the signature done with the public key of the identity provider. And as you mentioned, there are like far fewer identity providers than users. And so a relying party can simply look up that key and verify that. Instead, in the new mechanism that you are describing, the key is not coming, the key that signs the tokens that uh, you produce is not coming from a, a well-known identity provider that multiple RPs can find out about, but it's coming from a specific user. So that's the change in respect to the normal OpenID. Did I get it right? Yes, exactly. And other limitations we were having is, so the current scenario is users having OpenID provider on their devices, right? And that's where not always they can have a server that can host an endpoint to do the dynamic client registration or to host a user info endpoint to return the claims about the user. So that was another limitation that the current chapter seven simply says, use these set registration parameters, which is not very scalable as well. I see. So they predicted the scenario, but they didn't go far enough to the, to flesh out the details to actually make it viable. Is that what you are telling me? Yes, I think we're very grateful that the concept is there. But, you know, with the development of the certain new mechanisms that I'm hoping to mention later, there is a need to give a bit more flexibility. I see. Great. So tell me more about what you guys are planning. What are the things that you are adding or substituting on top of what you had in Chapter 7 that actually make the scenario viable? Yeah, so... So as I started, one mechanism currently defined for the user to prove the control of the keys was JWK thumbprint, but a new mechanism is to use decentralized identifiers. And decentralized identifiers offer you a mechanism where if a user presents you with a DID, which is a string, if you follow a particular rules under which that DID has been created, you can get a document, DID document, which contains different information about the user, including the public keys of the user. So you get those keys from that document and you check the signature of the response and check that the user is in control of those keys. 
So that was one layer of interactions that we added. Fantastic. Thank you. Like you said, again, so many things that are so salient that uh, I need to make sure I understood. I'm sorry, I'm slow. So great. You mentioned that there is a visa identifier that you call the VID. And uh, the magic property of this identifier is that when a relying party receives it, this identifier contains the information for the relying party to reach out somewhere in some uh, registry, I guess, and to find out for this user in particular what key should be used for checking the signature. And uh, so that the user has an opportunity when they present this token, which came from their local OP as opposed to some centralized place, to demonstrate that they have this key. Did I get it right? Yes, exactly. And I think there's a comparison of JWK Sumprint. That is also a way to prove control of the public key. But in the case of DIDs, because DID document, as you said, sits in the registry, user can rotate the public keys in that DID document, right? If those keys have been compromised or for whatever reason. So I think that is one benefit of using DIDs over the current JWK thumbprint mechanism. I'm tempted to ask you more details about the JWK thumbprint, but I think that the details will be very low level. So we'll just add it in the links to the show so that if people want to know, they can follow it. The main thing that instead I believe it's an important part of the picture is uh, this magic registry from where we are getting stuff from, these DIDs, like where does it live? Like, because I think that's an important part of the story. Like, Earlier, we said that when uh, stuff gets washed away, like uh, servers uh, and similar, like any provider no longer exists, then we have a problem because we can no longer retrieve stuff. And uh, one might wonder, like, hey, I have to hold these uh, DIDs somewhere. So how do I prevent the next tsunami from washing away the hardware on which was the IDs leave? So can you comment on that? So the specification for decentralized identifiers, which sits in W3C, doesn't exactly specify where the registry has to be. So that is left for the each TID method to decide. And of course, you hear a lot about blockchains, decentralized ledger technologies being used as one of the registries, but that is not the requirement per se. So you can use other types of similar technologies if they fulfill the requirements of so so technically <laughs> you can have a registry that is in the cloud too i guess whether that brings the benefits to this new technology is a different question but technically you can do that too okay fantastic thank you so much for clarifying that point i believe it's uh, one of the points that is uh, the most confusing in this area because like some people say like, say like wait a minute like here is like aren't you just kicking the can and it's great that you mentioned that those things can live on the blockchain, but that uh, functionally you can uh, achieve the same effect. Like as long as you can resolve this thing and you can extract the keys, then you solve the problem. Great. Fantastic. Okay. So you added the ability instead of using the JWK thumbprint to use the IDs. Great. What else did you add on top of chapter seven? So... One of the important aspects is discovery and registration. And to talk about this, we probably should mention another um, you know, use case or the driver behind the self-issued OpenID provider, which is as we migrate more and more to the digital world, there's increasing need to do authentication and authorization at the edge. So for example, when I'm getting into the car, we're not there yet, but probably I'm using 
my device to tell the car it's me and and I said I'm authorized to drive it or if I'm letting in someone into my house probably I'm not relying on simply the cameras I've set up or asking the user to present some you know proofs on their device to tell me that it's actually them and not the criminal so the assumption here is that user would have a self-issued OpenID provider on the device, at least in the beginning. Probably, you know, in the future, we would have users <laughs> renting parts on the server and, you know, hosting self-issued OPs there. But right now, the first use case we have is user um, having a self-issued OP on the device. So when we talk about discovery, which is how relying party knows how to invoke an app or you know software on user's device, if the self-issued OP is sitting is, is a native app, the option we have now is to use the custom schema OpenID colon workwork. And the custom schema is a mechanism that mobile operating system offers to the app developers. If they register pre-register a custom schema, the relying party as using that schema would be redirected to that application which reserved that schema. However, there are obviously um, several limitations. So one is if there it's not only native apps that could be an edge hosting self-issued OP. Some people have been mentioning PWAs or browser um, wallets. And also there are some platform limitations from the OS providers. For example, in iOS, the behaviors is unspecified. If several apps registered the same custom schema, which wallet will be opened when relying party comes with that custom schema. So probably we would need to talk to OS providers if we want to internally solve this problem. So this is not a perfect solution, but it is a solution we have now. And another important point I wanted to mention is registration, where Again, because of the limitations of not being able to have endpoint for dynamic client registration, the proposal now is to pass registration parameters in the authorization request together with other request parameters. And the new parameters defined are subject identifier method supported, whether you're using DIDs or JWK thumbprint. And if you're using DIDs, which DID method you're using? And we're getting there, but which credential format you're using. And if the self-issued OP supports the same parameters, the flow continues. If it doesn't, the error message goes back to the relying party. Great, fantastic. So here, just for uh, clarifying, you mentioned dynamic registration, which just uh, in case uh, someone just tuned in, is a mechanism that uh, OpenID uses for uh, allowing clients which don't have an existing relationship to just create an entry just in time and then work out this thing. And you said that the dynamic registration is not available and then you devise your own mechanism by passing parameters. Did I get it right? Yes, exactly. Perfect. And then the, the other part, which I found really, really interesting, if I understood correctly, is that you have parameters for clients to register and clients for the provider to register. And at runtime, you match the two to see whether the expectations of a relying party and the capability of your provider match, because uh, you mentioned that you might have uh, multiple flavors of DIDs and similar. So it's a, a thing like an emerging phenomenon that happens at runtime. Did I interpret correctly? Yes, that's, that's it. 
Fantastic. This is, uh, this is really great. You are clarifying so many things that I didn't get just by reading the spec. So I am uh, ultra grateful and I hope that the listeners will have the same uh, light coming up because like, really, really you are being uh, incredibly clear. Thank you. So anyway, so many moving parts here. I know that the specification is still being uh, vigorously debated. Like just yesterday, we had a, a call and uh, lots of different opinions and similar. So can you tell me a bit more about uh, like the uh, bureaucracy of it? Like where do we stand with the specification? Yes. So this mechanism of self-issued OP, as I mentioned, have been defined in OpenID Connect, Chapter 7. But a similar profile the ability to use decentralized identifiers as identifiers have been also developed in Decentralized Identity Foundation, or DIF. So the current work I've been talking about actually comes from, based on the liaison relationship we established between OIDF, OpenID Foundation, and Decentralized Identity Foundation. And there are not very many people who are experts in both fields, DIDs and OpenID Connect. So it has been very important. This work has come this way thanks to the great contribution from the both communities. And yes, as you just mentioned, the work is still you know, rigorously debated. And one interesting aspect worth mentioning is, so again, as we moved more digital and more transactions become digital, there's a need emerging to present claims from different sources in one transaction. So for example, if I just moved to Japan from the US and I want to get a driving license in Japan, I have to present my valid US driving license. I want to present my residence cards in Japan, the passport and other documents. And if you do it physically, you have to gather all these paper documents separately and have them verified by each issuer. And if you want to do it digitally, um, you have to ask your relying party to establish a trust relationship with each identity provider, which is the issuer of each document, right? So is there a way to you know, have these documents available to me in digital format and being able to send one transaction? And that's where community has also been looking into verifiable credentials, verifiable presentations, which is this new credential format. So another big debate is about how can self-issued OP support these VPs and verifiable credentials in the response. And the trick here is that there are different types of verifiable credentials. So one is JOT, which is you know native to OpenID Connect. But another one is JSON-LD using LD proofs, which is still, you know, undefined how that comes into OpenID Connect. So what are LD proofs? I'm not an expert, I'll be honest. It's this new mechanism of signing JSON-LD documents. I see. So it's an, like an alternative to placing stuff in a JWT instead that you do LD proofs, whatever they are. So we'll have a link again. That's our trick for all the stuff that we can't flesh out right away. We'll have a link that defines that. But functionally, it's just another way of uh, signing stuff. Yes, yeah, functionally, it's it's exactly another way of signing stuff and to give people maybe, not to confuse people, but give probably a couple of other pieces of this puzzle. So today we really talked about the presentation. How does self-issued OP presents the claims to the relying party and authenticates but how does it get those claims they can present as a relying party is yet another question. And 
if we're using some new identifiers in the presentation, probably we need to tie the claims to those identifiers as the issuance too. So there's you know work on in that sphere as well. And again, another aspect is if you have several proving mechanisms, for example, there's also this is out of scope of defining in the selfish LP itself, probably, but there's you know a way to combine with other like, query languages in other communities, such as you know, presentation exchange and digitized identity foundation, or even EKYC identity assurance work in OpenID Foundation, which would, you know, there's no reason we can't put those verified claims inside relying party asking, I want you, the end user, to give me the claims verified under this trust framework. So those are, I think, different touch points around this work. That's great. And uh, that part, the EKYC, is actually the subject, one entire episode, which I believe will air before hours. So fantastic. So much stuff. I'm tempted to summarize, but I'm sure that I would do. Well, let me try anyway. Most of the stuff that we've been covering, all the details that you explained, seem to be largely about creating a mechanism so that a user can present this identifier and proving that they, they own the identifier. And the thing that you added now is like, okay, we described all of this stuff about the identifier, but we also need to have some mechanism in which we actually get attributes from actual issuers and then present those attributes together with the identifier mechanism that you described. And uh, you painted a picture of uh, how you might uh, operate in synergies with others. Yes, and probably, you know, just to add one piece, because there's been a lot of attention towards decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials, right? But they are data models and credential models. So we need a transport. How do we deliver those? How do we use those in a protocol? So I think this work is very important to make those new innovations, so to say, that we have usable to actually take it to the peoples and put them to the real life test, as I say. You know, if they survive, we have an adoption. If they don't, probably we don't. And just to clarify, Federation is good. Like, you know, Federation is awesome. It works. And this work is so of self-issued OP is really about, you know, adding the tool in this toolbox that we can offer to the end users as a mean to authenticate themselves and, you know, present claims about themselves better in certain scenarios we've talked about, such as about edge authentication or tsunamis. <laughs> That's fantastic. This is uh, the clearest, most insightful description I heard of this ever, I'd say. <laughs> because like, this distinction between the data model and transport and how one is uh, fantastic, great. I have nothing to add. What would you say is a call to action if you want to issue a call to action to our listeners? We're looking for implementations, as I said, to give this a real-life test we have a certain mechanisms already defined in the specification. And now we really want to check if they work for your use case, for your combination of different parts. So if you can implement, give us the feedback. I'm not asking you to file the issues or do the pull requests in our repositories. That may be too much, but at least if you can give us an initial feedback, that would be increasingly valuable and probably also 
if it did a good job as a help of Vittorio today to clarifying this concept of selfish adult to you, probably, you know, helping to clarify that to other people around you would be the best, the best action we could ask you to take, to take away the whale of this, of this concept. Amazing. Fantastic. You really gave us a lot to think about today. And I believe you really shone a light on uh, something that uh, wasn't very clear until now. And uh, I'm sure that lots of people will have uh, the light gone in their head listening to this. And I'm sure that we'll get tons of questions, which is also great. And I hope that people will take you on your call to action because they are both uh, really useful. So I want to really thank you for your time today, Christina. Thank you for uh, coming here and uh, telling us about SLP. Thank you so much, Victor. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And thank you for asking amazing questions that made me think a lot too. Far too kind. My only skill in here is not to be very bright. And so I mean to keep asking for, uh, for explanation. Thanks again. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Until next time. The OpenID Foundation is a proud sponsor of the Identity Unlocked podcast. Since its formation in 2007, the Foundation has committed to promoting, protecting, and advancing the OpenID community and technologies. Please consider joining the Foundation and contributing to current working groups. To learn more about the OIDF, please visit www.openid.net. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app or at identityunlocked.com. Until next time, I'm Vittorio Bertocci and this is Identity Unlocked. Music for this podcast, composed and performed by Marcelo Wolowski. Identity Unlocked is powered by Of Zero. Copyright 2020, Of Zero Incorporated, all rights reserved.